Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. Our lives are animated by the stories we tell. And in cultures like ours, in which oral traditions help keep us connected to those who came before, the stories we tell about ourselves and our communities ensure there is evidence that we were here for future generations. And stories about our lives as we live them now do something powerful in the present too. They offer us an opportunity to unearth and critique how our lives are shaped and shaded by forces beyond our immediate control. Whether we're resisting the pressures of cultural expectations the imposition of gender or environmental catastrophe. Storytelling helps us intervene and disrupt so that we might have some hope of changing our lives and the world for the better. My guest today is theater and film director Emily Aboud, whose cabaret play Splintered gathers the first-person experiences of 12 queer women in Trinidad and Tobago. Splintered weaves together these experiences to show how queer women living under threat of homophobic violence cultivate and nurture intimacy, joy, and resistance together. Emily says she made an explicit and intentional decision to avoid centering the trauma queer women know so well, deciding instead to let laughter, irreverence, and satire act as the vehicle for a necessary critique of what post-colonial countries and cultures decide to hold on to. We explore Emily's complicated feelings about Carnival, her adoration of the mythic shapeshifter Lagahu, and her challenge to what she calls the false binary between art and science. Emily says art and science are asking the same question in two distinct but connected ways, and so we discuss how splintered is evidence of her scientific approach to theater making. Emily believes that art, at its core, needs to be political. Whether in its critique of power or its provocation of joy and laughter, art must help move us towards freedom. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Emily Aboud.
Molly, thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be in conversation on Busy Being Black. Um, I'm fresh off a high of after seeing Splintered last night. And so I'm really glad to have you in this space and to be in conversation with you. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. It's um it's great. And it's really, really nice that you've seen the show as well, because it's so hard to describe. So it's nice that we're now like kind of on an equal playing field and I don't have to explain it, which is nice. Yeah, and we'll actually talk about that later because I think part of what was so um, exciting and enchanting for me about Splintered was I, I wasn't actually quite sure <laughs> what to expect. And so there was a, a surprise and a delight um, about that experience. So I'm excited for listeners to experience Splintered as well. Yes, I will try and explain it as best as I can, listeners. And Joshua, I mean, so it's all good. It's all good. Um, to open my conversations, I like to ask all my guests the same question. How's your heart? Hmm. I think I'd say my heart is full. It's feeling very good. We had an um, opening gala for the show last night. So I'm feeling full of love and uh, like appreciation for all the people who have gone into helping to get the show on. But it's also, it's not like a good full. It's not, it's not like a very rich fullness, if that makes sense. I feel, I feel like, yeah, my heart, my heart is good and it is full of love, but also it's just feeling like a little, if you, if you were to hit it, it wouldn't be a pure sound. And I think that's just because I'm pretty tired and a little bit burnt out from 2023. So I'm full. I'm grateful to be having the job that I have. But I think some rest would be good now. You know, like you hit it and it makes a clang instead of a, a fullness. Does that make sense? I listened to a conversation a few years ago and I can't remember um, on which platform or, or who, who the interviewer was. But I do remember that they were talking about how we've simplified our emotions and our feelings. And we always try to uh, name our feelings as we are either happy or we're sad. Like there's this kind of very dichotomous approach to our feelings. Mm. And actually what we feel most of the time is many things simultaneously. It's not just anger. It's maybe a bit of anger and dread and horniness. Like it, it could be like all of these mm. things that kind of <laughs> animate this, um, what Kevin Kwashi would call our, our wild and voluptuous interior lives. Wow. That's lovely. I mean, I, I I really, I agree with you. I think that's not dissimilar to the thought process behind naming my theatre company Lagahoo Productions, because a Lagahoo is a shapeshifter. He's a Caribbean sort of werewolf, um, but like greater than a werewolf, like he can become a beam of light, like he can become a shadow, like he's, he's this crazy thing uh, that is hard to define. Um, and the only thing, I mean, how I interpret him because uh, he's he's kind of a bad guy in the folklore world, but um, I think that's okay. But the, the reason it's called Lagahoo is because we we contain multitudes. I know our first show was going to be, you know, this exploration of uh, queerness in the Caribbean, but our second show ended up being a horror about the Haitian Revolution. So like, I was just kind of like, I don't want to name this theatre. The only thing I'm really uh, fussed about this company's name, it needs to be a Caribbean name, but it needs to contain multitudes. So... Like who, like everyone, I agree with your emotion chat. It is right. It's very right. Can you say more about Lagahu? So Lagahu uh, is, I think, based on a where is basically based on the werewolf folk 
little character. Um, I think in St. Lucia, it's called Le Loup Garou, which I think Loop is wolf, I don't know, or like Le Garou and stuff like that. Um, and I don't know, I've always, that I've, I'm really a big fan of Trinidadian and Caribbean folklore. I think it's amazing. And I think doing a lot of youth theater that we were taught, we were taught a lot about the folklore characters and also sillyly. Sillyly, is that, is that an adjective? In, in a silly way. <laughs> I mean, when I was 17, we did a show called Lagahu and it was one of my, it was a devised piece and we all had to be Lagahus and I loved it. And that made an impression on me. Um, and my father, you know, when I was 12, my father's a poet and he has his famous book is called Lagahu Poems. So like, you know, when it came to having to make a company so that we could start the process of putting on Splintered, because the play came before the company, um, I was like, this has got to be Lagahu. This is... This is the shape-shifting witch doctor of the village who, you know, goes around, uh, I mean, in, in a really bad way, uh, trying to shaggle the virgins in the village. So you want to, you want to, you don't want lagahus in your village because they're such um, antagonistic witch doctors um, and they're really scary and powerful. So I thought, I don't know, I've always really connected with, with this idea of being a shapeshifter with ultimate power that invokes that invokes fear, which is sad. I know I shouldn't. I, I mean, it's it's it, yeah, it's fear that I love, not love. I guess sad. I was um, oh, there's so much I want to say. I'm so glad I asked that question. But the first thought that popped into my mind was this idea of like uh, the villainous within folklore or the outsiders within mm -hmm. folklore and how the outsiders are always used to provoke fear, right? Um, fear for our safety, for our virginity, for um, our, our our health and well-being. But I have Dionysus um, tattooed on my arm. Um, and I, I love Dionysus because of the Greek gods, he to me feels the most rebellious, right? Like in, in response to Hera's jealousy and getting chopped up by the Titans, he decided to fuck off and drink wine and have orgies. And I was like, that's my kind of guy, you know, <laughs> that's my kind of deity. Yeah. Um, and so I, I love this kind of queer connection to um, the divine and the mythic as well, because I think that we, we, we as queer people can so often see our stories and our feelings reflected in the ones we're supposed to fear. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I think as well, like, uh, you know, traditionally the lager who is a man. Um, but for me, I've always, my, my definition has always expanded into like the multiplicity of gender and queerness. Like I've always just thought that this guy, this person is a shapeshifter. Perhaps he's masculine energy. Like we could talk about gender as a social construct. But for me, I, I've always sort of loved the idea of being able to shapeshift and being able, like I'm a drag king as well. So like I can, I do drag sometimes and that's hyper-masculine, but you know, it, it it's, it's wonderful that we contain multitudes, you know? Mm. Um, but I also want to say, which is hilarious, um, you know, the Roman version um, of that God is Bacchus, right? Yes. Uh, and that's a big Trinidadian word is Bacchanal. Ah. You know that word bacchanal? I do know it. Yeah. You would have heard it in, in like carnival music. And bacchanal is bacchanalia, which is like drinking and festivities like Bacchus. So yeah, as soon as you showed me the tattoo, I was like, ah, bacchanal. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you know, Dionysus or um the other one. What's his name in Roman? Bacchus. Bacchus, thank you. I was gonna say Bacchan. And I was like, that's, that's okay, you know when you're saying something in your head, and you're like, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> um um 
he's a hedonist, right? Or they're yeah. a hedonist. I'm reading um, a lot of Sophie Strand's work. And I don't know if you're familiar with Sophie Strand, but mm-hmm. I've been talking about her work on the show for a bit. Um, and she's, you know, I was introduced to her work because she's trying to um, re-earth Jesus and Yeshua, right? That that in our Western cultures, we've, we're um, taught to praise deities in the sky and spirits in the sky. And that this is kind of runs parallel to this divorce from our earthly embodied experience. Um, and and so I, I love this. Oh, your for listeners, Emily's I, mouth is a gape. So <laughs> I know this sounds fantastic. What, oh yeah. What is this writer's name? Sophie Strand. Sophie Strand. I'm gonna. I'm literally gonna buy. Like, is it like a book? Uh, she has a book called The Flowering Wand. I, and I should say for listeners, I'm not being paid to promote this. I just love <laughs> Sophie Strand. Flowering wand. No, I'm gonna buy it. That. Yeah. I I was raised Catholic and went to. Uh, a convent like I was head girl of one of the oldest schools in the Caribbean that's run by nuns like I'm very aware of I don't know if you can tell from the show I um I think Catholicism is so camp I think it's hilarious I love it it is um I'm a raging atheist yeah but like (laughs) this kind of stuff like I I love this this is right up my alley but the thing that's in my mind now about transformation and um containing multitudes and the queer mythic is that in a conversation with Sophie Strand and Bayo Okomolafe, who's like another kind of spiritualist and philosopher and writer at that intersection of theology and um, ecology, if you will, um, is that these kind of dominant religions in order to survive have kind of sucked up these kind of more mythic spiritual pagan practices dressed as something else, that that's one way of looking at it. But also that mm. the the earth more earthly gods and deities and spirits also adapted to fit into the dominant religions so that they would survive. And so I don't know. I guess I'm thinking of of the play and and of you and your work and this idea that um, in Lagahu and indeed as we manifest ourselves now as as queer people from these kind of diasporic cultures, that we also represent this kind of um, collection of ideas assumptions fears stories and myths and that maybe that kind of explains also a kind of attraction to um identifying with the kind of fearsome and yeah the fearsome and the powerful and the the outside of society but like oh i don't know i kind of want to touch on I, i feel like i'm always presenting um two opposing things at the same time and like a big example of that just now is I'm a raging atheist, raging atheist, um, perhaps because growing up as a queer woman in Trinidad makes you despise uh, all organized religion. Um, so that's the one end of the spectrum. And then on the other hand, I mean, I believe in Lagahoos and I think that like the power of trees and deep breathing is a very important spiritual thing. Like I don't really wear shoes if I can because I want to connect to the earth as much as I can because I have this like very fervent belief in the importance of like good oxygen and good water and telling stories like for me theater is a very is a you know could be defined as a deeply religious experience because when people are going to church they're singing together they're being together it's communal it's this communal belief um listening to the readings and the hymns xyz and that is so similar to the theater that I'm interested in, which is 
incredibly inclusive theatre, uh, theatre that involves the audience, theatre that makes us feel stuff and makes us sing and dance. So, yeah, I feel like that's another reason why Lagahu means a lot to me, because he's he's presenting two opposite things at the same time, you know? Talk to me about a young Emily. If I if you if you, if you <laughs> cast your mind back to growing up in Trinidad, what sights, sounds, sensations come to mind for you? I have autism uh, and it took me a few years to learn social norms and learn how to speak to people and learn how what friendship is and how, and how to access that. Obviously, uh, theatre had a big hand in teaching me things like empathy and um, yeah, just, just even like reading someone's face to decide if they're happy or sad. Like that was just stuff that take that didn't come naturally to me. So that took practice. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a, a young Emily um, hated loud noises, um, only touched things that were the color green um, and read voraciously and played tennis voraciously. Um, and I think a big turning point in my life, and I've spoken about this multiple times and I imagine I'll speak about it forever and ever, amen, was when I saw a youth theater show by Lily Patheta, um, because my auntie was costume design, not actually my auntie, but you know what I mean, was costume design in it. So I went to see it and I was like 11. And I just remember being, I, I, I don't even know why I wanted to be on stage so much. I just saw these people, these kids, just like me, telling their own stories. And like, you know, it wasn't, you know, we were putting on accents. We, were, we weren't, you know, doing Little Red Riding Hood. It was like, these kids devised their own story and we were performing and they were performing it. And I just, and it was so funny and it was so, I suppose, relevant to me as an 11 year old. Cause there was some, you know, there would, there would be jokes that the parents didn't get because they wrote it and that's what's going on in schoolyards and whatever. So um, yeah, young Emily was very, very shy. And I think when people meet me, they don't, they don't actually know how shy I am. And everything is just a big mask which is another reason why I love Lagahu because and theater because everything is a performance and gender is a performance. But yeah, uh, I think I think young Emily is very very similar to grown up Emily, um, but grown up Emily can mask it way better. So grown up Emily still only wants to touch green things like grass and trees and bushes. Um, grown up Emily still loves to read. Um, yeah, I, th- I think they're, they're, they're pretty much the same person. And I think anyone who's known me, all my best friends from home who've known me since I was like 10, it is it is annoying. I, I don't think I've, I've changed very much over the years, but I, I, I can be perceived better, if that makes sense. You're the third person I'm interviewing in the space of a year who has studied engineering um, at university level and then gone on to pursue a life and career in the arts. And, you know, there, I, I had an interview with Shruk Elatar, who performs as the dancing queer, a bearded belly dancer, yes. and who creates belly dancing robots. There's Michaela Wuna, um, who's based in the US and studied biomedical engineering, and um, now, you know, creates photographs that bring together queer um, people of the African diaspora and African cosmologies. And there's you, who studied mechanical engineering, and is now theater making and directing and writing. And it's not a question, but I wanted to, I, I, it occurred to me this morning, I was like, oh, that's very interesting. I wonder what's happening there, or maybe it's coincidental, right? Maybe, maybe, as, maybe we come from cultures that appreciate art, but don't necessarily see it as a viable career. And so we're kind of encouraged to pursue real professions, quote unquote. 
That is my first instinct, to be okay. honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I imagine it's, is that also like, I mean, in Trinidad, there is, there is, I don't want to like make general statements. I can only speak for like my school and a few others, but to the best of my knowledge, there is very little um, encouragement uh, for, for the students to go into the arts. Like my school uh, was run by nuns and like everything was about trying to get scholarships from the government. So that was just like science, math, languages, like there were maybe about six students every year who like begged to do the art CAPE, which is the equivalent to A-levels CAPE. So, um, yeah, I mean, the first answer is perhaps the culture is more geared towards steering the youth into engineering, medicine, uh, law, hmm. uh, which is what my sisters have done. Ha ha ha. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have a, I have a quote that I always say, yeah, which is um, for me, like, I still love science. I still it's, it's not that I did engineering because I was forced to. I I think I would still do it again. I love it. Um, but I also love theater. So there's two things at play here. One, a false binary between art and science, because I think they're the same thing. Um, and, and two, it's containing multitudes, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I just, I think art and science are the same thing. Um, my friends make fun of me because I say it all the time. Well, say more about that then. Say more about what you've learned about how art and science are the same thing. And let's be specific to your experience studying um, mechanical engineering and theater mm. making. Well, I just, and I think my dad disagrees with me heavily on this because he is very not mathsy and he's like, he, he's, he's a judge and he's a poet. So he's very wordy and emotional. Um, not that that, again, I, we're implying a false binary. I don't sure. think there's a binary there, but he seems to think so. And that's fine. But I mean, you know, art and science are the same thing because they're asking the same question uh, in different ways, right? So the question is, who am I? Who are we? Why are we here? Like, who? essentially, who am I? Science is looking out and uh, art is looking in. I think, I th- yeah, I think that, yeah. I think it, that there's, no, there's, it's hard to elaborate, or I can. But well, I th- I'm going to give you a prompt then. In Matter and Desire and Erotic Ecology by biological philosopher Andreas Weber, with whom I'm obsessed, and I'm talking about him every single day to anyone who will listen, he's challenging this idea of the sciences and biology in particular um, for being kind of totally consumed with this kind of um, causal mechanistic mode of understanding the lived experience and this kind of separation between the feeling human experience and the kind of very hard reasoning of quote unquote objective truth that um, the sciences pursue. And he says that if we look at our lived experience um, and even the experience of the smallest cell, um, there is a hunger for more life, right? There is, there is a feeling that animates um, organisms to move, to become enmeshed, to engage with the world around them. And he thinks that language um, is how we express as humans that interconnectedness, and particularly poetry. He says that it seems to me that the poetic mode of perception and our experience as life forms are more intimately connected with one another than our technological culture has long claimed. Perhaps it is even true that at the beginning of our lives, when everything seems so magical and shining and new, 
we only have poetic experiences, quavering, inspiring, illuminating, connecting us intimately with the world. Right, and so I think you're right too, right? That they're answering the same question through mm -hmm. different avenues. And I think David Abrams would even argue, the, the magician and philosopher would even argue that what we have to do is begin to bridge that gap between, yeah. um, um, between those two ways of exploring that question. Yeah, I, I, I think also a lot of a lot of this sort of discussion is like every discussion is 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 an argument on what the definitions are. Mm. So perhaps to some people, science is this like objective truth, um, objective truth, facts and figures kind of thing, which in many ways it is. But I think as a science nerd, once you start to get into like the quantum realm, once you start to get into like the unknowns of physics and the unknowns of outer space, you realize how uh, complex and beautiful science is. Um, I don't know. It's it's. I I think I think with with this definition with this with this conversation, it's always just like oh, we think of art as like colors and science as like numbers. Whereas like why why art can be incredibly mathematical in a beautiful mm. way. Like that's it's it's silly to think that. They're just not the same thing or like different versions and different combinations of the analytical and the emotional. And yeah, I, I think, I think my, I think I approach everything scientifically to be honest, but like not in the way that people would define scientifically. I just mean in the way that like, I think this and I would like to test this or explore this. And I would like to explore every avenue that I can come up with to explore it and then make a conclusion. I don't know. I, I feel like, and and that would include emotion. That would include poetry. Like, why does this make me feel like this? Is it how the actor has said it? Is it because the words remind me of home? Like, this is all science to me, you know? And so is there something for you that emerges in both of these spaces that seems very obvious to you as being very similar? So let's take Splintered, for example. How does your... Um, mechanical engineering show up in the kind of creation of a show like Splintered? Great question. Because I think you, I think having the education of science and maths that I had very, very much helped make Splintered. Um, because it's such a personal story. It's taken from, it's taken from uh, queer women from Trinidad, but also like some of my experience as well. Um, and you know has had input over the years because it's been so long it's you know as 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 the show grows some of the people that I interviewed still haven't been able to come out some have passed away like it's 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 very personal story you know I think I I began writing this play incredibly scientifically to the best of my knowledge and trying to get a diverse uh group to interview ask them all the same questions um not try and influence their answers in any way um, and then once all that data is made, then it became a, a scientific thing of being like, right, well, where are the similarities? How can I link all these things together? How can I speak about, you know, the history of carnival kept coming up. So I was like, oh, well, this is really interesting. I think this is important, like how free up carnival is. So yeah, it's a combination of things. I think a, a play mm. that's based on interviews, I felt a real responsibility, um, which, which is... 
which can be unfair, but also I think is valid and important because I felt a responsibility that I was like suddenly representing like every woman of Trinidad and Tobago, which is an impossible task. But again, approaching it as objectively as I could and as fairly as I could um, is essential, I think, because it would be very easy for me to just like, what, interview the three very out lesbians uh, in Trinidad who all happen to be fair skin uh, and all happen to have like middle-class upbringings. And then, well, that's, that's not fair. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it's a combination of, of many yeah. things. And the, sort of the science is there. The emotion very easily came and this, the emotion was in the science as well, but it's just, it's just about, it's just about um, uh, being aware of the power that I had. Um, and the responsibility that I had, you know? Yeah, there's what I'm what I'm hearing is there's this beautiful confluence of um, the objective science and the subjective experience, lived experience, and that mm -hmm. each does justice to the other. Because, right? yeah. you know, it's like um, data alone can't really tell you anything about the human experience, right? Feeling is needed. Emotion is needed that, to bring to that data to life. Yeah. 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 And for me, that's a very key part of science is the analysis, which some can interpret as the emotional input or the human input, which is cool, but yes. Yeah, because you took quite an ethnographic approach to researching um, Splinter. Do I have it right that there were 12 interviewees? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you interviewed 12 queer women in Trinidad. Um, talk to me about what you learned over the course of these conversations. If you had to distill... Um, and, and maybe this isn't necessarily a question about Splinter, but how 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 was Emily transformed over the course of gathering twelve conversations with queer women in Trinidad? I don't know. I I don't think there was a there was a big eureka moment for me. Um, I was surprised how similar it was to 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 my feelings and re like the oppression of religion came up a lot. The like because the schools are so religious, all the high schools. So when everyone's discovering themselves. You know, it was it was actually really interesting because I didn't come out or not. I didn't even know I was queer until I was 22. So I fully breezed through high school, you know, Miss Autistic. Dee, 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 dee. I don't fancy anyone. I don't have any friends. Um, but to hear. To, to, to hear the experiences that these other queer women had that I would have had, I suppose, had I had I realized it earlier or, or if circumstances were different. It, it wasn't a big eureka moment though, because mm. just thinking back, I was like, of course, of course that would have been the thing. Of course, sister Mary Higgins or what Mary, Mary Lou would have done that. Of course, sister, you, like, I, yeah, it, I think, I think doing it, it was, I was expecting to be blown away or to learn something, but I felt like all of the interviews, and I, and I mean all of them, had a similar kind of well yeah trinidad of course we're homophobic of course i have to do this of course this is what's happened of course um and and yeah and there was i mean there were some 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 really sad things that I've, I've 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 opted to take out of the show but you know like stuff that i knew i knew what would happen it was just hard to hear it out out loud and stuff that is just was just kind of built into me uh, growing up knowing that these things happen and then just to hear them confirmed you just kind of like yeah of course of course this person um you know trigger warning for assault was assaulted um by a man trying to prove 
something that she wasn't, you know? Like, I think it was worse because it wasn't surprising, if that makes sense. It makes total sense, yeah. Um, and I think the show makes a point of uh, not addressing the traumatic. I mean, it's even said in the show that today we're focusing on on joy, which is such a relief in many ways, because I think there's this misunderstanding that um, trauma is only relatable if it's spoken out loud, right? Particularly in the arts. And that there's this kind of demand of Black people and queer people that there's a performance of the trauma and that by performing the trauma, we change hearts and minds and blah, blah, blah. But that misses out that there is, and this is sad because of what it says, but there is an understanding. I remember, I've said this on the show before, but when I was, um, when I finally came out about the sexual assault that I experienced, it was some like, you know, ages and ages later that I felt comfortable saying it. And a best girlfriend of mine sent me a very simple message. I'm sure you know you're among great company, right? And nothing else needed to be said. It was the most comforting thing. And it was so sad that it was so comforting to me mm -hmm. because we just knew, right? Um, and so I, that makes a lot of sense to me. And so what then becomes possible when we assume a shared understanding of something traumatic and instead decide to pursue the levity and joy that we also experience and, and, and purposely pursue. That's a really lovely message. That's, I, I think I, uh, I, this is kind of my, my cross to bear of the last year, um, even more so this year, I think even more so post COVID than, than pre COVID. But uh, my big thing is artist responsibility. Um, and theater artists especially, or live live artists, as opposed to like film, have a real responsibility. And it's an honor um, that you are holding people in a space and they are experiencing something together. And I always, I've seen a lot of shows um, that, that are provocative without any care to the audience. And I think- I just got goosebumps, yeah. I just, I think, I actually think it's really easy to get a reaction from the audience. Um, and it's lazy, uh, depending on how you do it. Because I can write a play about, you know, an assault or um, I could, uh, there's a version of Splintered where I very easily just get a projector and project images of like the gully queens of Jamaica and like all of the horrible things that are happening. Because, But that would be so easy and it's so manipulative and it's so... Uh, disrespectful, I think, disrespectful mm. to the people there, disrespectful to the people it affects. Um, and I think that's that's where that's that's when art is hard and that's when art is naughty and that's when it that's when you can create something very good because you I just think that artists should be more clever. If they if if, if you're gonna go to the easiest thing to get a reaction, if your goal is a reaction, then yeah, sure, write a play about leukemia for Christ's sake. Like do that. But I think the, the the real skill is 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 getting an audience to feel something that isn't doesn't feel manipulative and feels quite safe and you you can you can harness that and I'm really proud of Splinter because I think um, I I just I just flat out refused to 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 make a show about queer trauma I don't I, I knew I was gonna have to see the show you know three times mm -hmm. a week I don't want to see that show so yeah I think yeah I I I'm really have a big cross to bear with um, 
with artists, and it feels worse post-COVID, just taking the easiest, most manipulative route to yeah. make a you know, it's just it's 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 bad art is what it is. Busy being black returns in just a moment. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with theater and film director Emily Aboud, whose cabaret play Splintered first debuted at Edinburgh Fringe in 2019 and is now on at Soho Theatre. Splintered explores what it means to be queer in a place where it is outlawed and features the voices and experiences of 12 queer women from Trinidad and Tobago, like that of her friend Kimberly. Once, once, yeah. we were at a Red New Fire, it was like two years ago, yeah, and yeah. Um, she, she's like, she was like, Kim, I want to kiss a woman at the end of the night. And I was like, okay, Len, you know what? If the night goes by and you do not kiss anyone, just kiss me, okay? That happened to me on New Year's this year. Right, yes, right. And then the night comes, didn't kiss anyone. She's like, Kim, okay, let's, we need to do this. Oh, okay. So. so we kissed and it was, it was good. It was, Great kiss, and then it's a good kisser, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, we briefly debated going further than that. Mm. We were like, you know what, maybe friendship, friendship yeah. you know. But I encouraged her to, you know, download Tinder, set your preference to woman. She okay. did. She went on a date with a woman. No, internet. Yes. When I, because I've been swiping here, and I'd be like, all these people that I know, right? I'm like, Wait, hold on. Right? Yes. It's so great. It's so great. This circle's huge. I didn't even, because we're in hiding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we're definitely coming out of hiding, slowly but surely. Um, but, like, girls in Compton, I'd be like, they pop up on my tent. I'm like, how yes. the fuck? Yes. I swipe right for that. Yeah. yeah. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I counted two places where you, that you created in the course of the show for the audience to um, reflect on their own experience. I counted two. Okay. And I, I feel like I can't say it without doing a spoiler, but um, there's one that's more obvious when the hurt um, of one of the characters is kind of more directly um, expressed to the audience, but there's mm. a great deal of silence around that hurt. And so I, I recognized that as, oh, interesting. That's just, And I started thinking about my own hurt. And so I was like, ah, this is a space for this to come in. And the second... Sorry? That waiting in vain. The Bob Marley one, the dance. Oh, no. And oh. also that one. Oh, right. Yeah. Because, right, yeah. again, there was... Because I, I this is just my experience of the show. But I didn't see myself thinking about my own experience as a queer kid, except for in two places. And those two places were when there was a great deal of, when it was a serious moment, but also there was silence that surrounded that serious moment. Um, and I don't know if that was intentional, but I thought that was a very clever, that felt clever to me that um, that in this show that is so raucous and joyful and cheeky, um, that we had, we were given these moments as well to to reflect. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could be like, oh, it was a very clever decision. But I think I'm really lucky with this play because, like, obviously it's gone through many drafts, but it those moments were always going to be silent, I think. And the mm. funny moments were always going to be loud. And it wasn't me, like, consciously being like, this needs to be silent because the rest of it's loud. But I just think the two moments that you're speaking about, um, 
I don't know. I, I think maybe this is when queer, this is, this is when we, is, is a good example of why experience matters when you're making work. Because I don't think a straight person would understand what those silences mean. And I, I just think as a maker, I actually really, really love silence. Perhaps, perhaps it is an autistic thing because words fail me a lot. Um, but body language, I think, is fascinating. And, and things unsaid, I think, is way more fascinating. And often, to be fair, at, at the, sort of the, the climax um, is when, I'm just going to say it, a character comes out um, to her mom, which is something she's been avoiding for the whole show. And that was very, very based on me coming out to my mom. Because um, there were two things at play, which is uh, I was... I was coming out and she wasn't responding because I was clearly shocking her. Um, and I remember in that moment thinking like, God, what a, what a fascinating thing to see. Um, because my face was just like, why isn't she, mm-hmm. all that sound is like, why isn't she responding? Okay. I'll say something else. Why? And it, it was so bad. It was, just, I, I was worried that we'd lost signal on the WhatsApp call, which again became a theme. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wish I could say I was like very cleverly trying to use silence. I just, it wasn't me making a decision to make it silent. It was like, oh, this is, this has to be silent because the things unsaid are so important. Like both the mother and the daughter love each other and they don't want to hurt the other one. So it's all of those pauses is, is, is really act. I could write the lines of those silences. Those thoughts need to be shown. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe, why hasn't she said anything? Has she hung up, mom? You know what I mean? Like all that stuff just needs to be in those pregnant pauses. So yeah, I'm I'm glad you like those bits. I'm proud of those bits. Okay, so I took some notes on my phone. I'm worried we're running out of time. So I took some notes on my phone um, while I was watching the show. Um, I've yeah. tidied them up a little bit, but I wanted to um, remain true to the original thought that I had experiencing the show. Can we? Can I take you through a couple of them? Please, yeah, I'd love that. Okay, I, because they're, they're supposed to be, they're conversation prompts, so I'd love to know what you think. So the first one I wrote down, um, how joy is obscured in the narrative of Global South issues. I'm thinking of how bright we become when we're exploring ourselves and when we're being enchanted by someone and how that spark, that luminescence is so systematically extinguished and how queerness reignites us. That's That's a good starter um i don't know how to respond hold on i'm trying to think because i mean i i i i agree i think if something is suppressed and then it is allowed to bloom it feels more vibrant because it's it, it's it's tried harder to get there mm. well but who I, are the I two girls of- uh shanice and and serena and serena yes. that i yeah. remember that thought emerged then and it was there was something about the one it's a and it's the funniest part of the show to me um oh great i was almost cried with laughter i thought it was so funny the voiceovers listeners when you see it you'll get it um i almost (laughs) wet myself the laugh the voiceovers were so funny to me um but as they were dancing together right as they were studying together and that playful curiosity between them both that sisterhood that emerging friendship I was like ah oh, that's the kind of zestiness that I think many of us feel as queer kids when 
there is, for lack of a better word, an innocence around the connection, right? There's an innocence to the curiosity that lights us up. Yeah. Oh, I agree. That's so smart. <laughs> I've never thought about it. I think that's so lovely. I, and I think that's also, you know, what, what's fantastic about queerness, and I kind of touched it a little bit at the end, is that like once you sort of decolonize what, what, you know, love and sex is, and you realize that they are contain multitudes. It's not just like, I have a friend and this is a platonic love and I have a partner, I have a husband and I want to fuck him and he is my husband and I don't want to fuck anyone else and I only fuck uh, cis straight men, la la la. But I think, yeah, there there is that kind of joy and that innocence and that kind of like, nothing has been defined yet. That when when you're a young queer, I, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't have to be sexual, but it can be a fascination with with somebody of your gender. It can be it just it, it is it is a kind of love that hasn't been defined by the colonizer. So there is that sparky um, magic around it because it's almost like the words you you not learned the words yet. And I think yeah, I think you're right. I think that's that's really love. That's really lovely. So that's what their story made me feel slash think of. Yeah. Um, I was, I'd love to, you know, uh, for you to talk a little bit more about the queerness of carnival. Um, so it's a theme, as you said, that that runs that runs through the show. And I think for listeners who aren't familiar with carnival or with Caribbean culture more broadly, um, can you talk about like why it's, why carnival is, as you say in this show, gay as shit? <laughs> you know, this is, this is, um, this is when the show should be a two hour long show because I think I want, I want more carnival in it, but with the British audience, uh, there's so much sort of groundwork you need to do to understand the history of before you can even get into the queerness and the oppression of it. But um, yeah, I think uh, uh, carnival was, you know, born out of, out of a satirical uh, take on Mardi Gras, you know, out of, the oppressed, um, so that would be the, the enslaved Africans, later the Ind Indian indentured laborers, later the, the Chinese immigrants and the Arabic immigrants. Like this was a, a festival that grew um, as a way to make fun of the colonizer. So um, there were French people in Trinidad. There's a long reason why it's to do with Spain being a bad colony manager and needing some Catholics in, so they bring the French people in, la-di-da. Um, and I think it's hard because queerness, I think, is 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 ex, what's the word exudes? Is that the right word? Definition. Queerness is very hard to define mm, on purpose. Mm. And I'm wary of making sweeping statements and being like, "Oh, carnival's gay as shit," because the people playing carnival are not gay as shit, or like the the it, it's still a massively Catholic society. It's still like a post-colonial society, but this festival that at its core is about breaking societal norms and trying to, 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 to mock the oppressor and to get power from, from mocking the oppressor. And that includes um, gender, that, that includes gender swapping, that includes drag, that includes um, camp, all of these, all of these ways that um, is, have often been used as a way to satirize the oppressor. And I don't know the answer. I don't know mm. if camp is, is natural does that make sense yeah. like obviously like oppression has been put down so it's the opposite of oppression camp 
and like different cultures in different continents have all come to that conclusion in a different way. Because I, I think yeah, I love that. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I think there's 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 a solid way to get power or to feel like you have power when you don't is to is to to mock what is what is oppressing you and that manifested in this carnival festival. But if your show was another hour, and I've added a few lines this time to hint to that, um, because I think I'm wary of oversimplifying what is actually still a super homophobic society. Um, I don't. I think it, it's it's almost like if you look at Carnival, you see what is a queer festival at this core. But then if you zoom in, nobody, well, none of the none of the the majority of the people in the festival don't even realize it. And it's just they're still homophobic, they're still Catholic, but like, haha, there's someone in drag. That's our culture, big up drag, because it's carnival. And then, you know, Ash Wednesday drag is horrible and it's destroying the kids. It, it, it's this ridiculous cognitive dissonance that I find hard to describe. And I, I, I've always been quite wary with the show of, I think, I think, um, I think a lot of British theatre has a ten- tendency to oversimplify that everything from the Caribbean is amazing and magical. When I'm like, Trinidad has been a republic for 30 years. Um, we are homophobic because we're not changing our own laws. You know what I yeah. mean? And I think... That's coming out a bit more in this version. Um, and I'm actually, yeah, I, I really struggle with um, how much I love home and how much I want to share that culture in in this country, but also just the frustration, man. It's, it's yeah. Mm. I don't know if I, I, I have no clue answering the question yes, anymore. No, I, I think it's, I, it's complex. It's super complex. It's actually, yeah. yeah, and of course, you know, um, to your point, we'd have to define queer first, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, come to some sort of consensus about, you know, what we want queer to mean in this context and beyond. So I understand that. I think what stands out to me about the queerness of Carnival, the way that you've put it together, is that mm-hmm. it's a reminder that, you know, queer Trinis and queer people of the African diaspora don't emerge from nothing, right? That that we emerge within cultures that already have a history of rebellion, refusal, confrontation, provocation, satire, mocking, that, you know, we come from cultures that have never taken shit lying down. And so there's a queerness at that level of carnival, right? That whether or not it's operationally queer, (laughs) it is is queer in its genesis and in its potential. Yeah, it's it's kind of like, you know, it's like bringing intersectionality to to queerness and bringing all the levels. I, I, what did you say? It's not operationally queer. Yeah, it's like... It's not queer, it's operational. Yeah, it's not queer. Yeah. Oper- yeah, queerly operational, yeah. It's a queer machine, but like nobody seems to realize, like we're just, it's just part of the system as this... And then, I mean, we could talk forever about the commercialization of Carnival and like how... I mean, that's that's a play that I don't think I could ever do in England because it requires too much prior knowledge of what mass is and what carnival is. But um, I actually did my thesis on how, you know, carnival, very much like queerness, is, 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 is impossible to define because it's changing all the time. Um, and 
you know, Carnival, when it began, it was this hugely political thing. But now that it's become global, like because of globalization, which, you know, isn't bad because, you know, some islands, we need those tourism dollars. Um, there's, there's only so much we can do in this global capitalist world. Like the globalization of mass cumulatively is probably more good than bad um, for the people living in the countries. Hopefully, I don't know. Um, but then now that's the new thing is that Carnival at its heart is becoming is 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 becoming global is becoming it, it is it is part of the culture when it should be very anti the white supremacist uh capitalist culture so yeah it's um that's that's a whole nother play is oh. the difference between all mass and the Cambouli riots and um all mass is what carnival yeah, so there's pretty mass and there's all mass. And pretty mass is what everyone thinks carnival is, which is like sequin bikinis and like all the feathers and like, woo, jamming with your friends and everyone's got a little bit of fake tan if you're fair skin and everyone's got like ridiculous makeup and it's very pretty. But then all mass is, is the political side. It's like, it that is the fancy sailor character and the Dame Lorraine character and the devil character and you're covered in mud and you're covered in oil and uh, that's dying, you know? Mm. So it's... But then to keep it alive, do we encourage uh, globalization of all mass? Because then, no, I don't think we should. So then it's it's this it's hilarious. It's complex. Well, this kind of speaks to the, the third note I wanted to share with you. And this was just something that was prompted uh, because um, the show is interlaced with these um, voice notes, if you will, um, from these 12 conversations that you gathered as part of the research um, and building of splinter and um in this voice note the person the person the people aren't named in the voice note so i don't know who was speaking but you'll know they were talking about um during carnival um these presumably heterosexual men will go down to the um they said seediest part of town sleaziest yeah. part of town and they'll buy pink lingerie and you know they'll get dressed up in the in, you know these kind of negligees, and they'll perform. But you know, as part of this carnival, that it's okay. Um, but their mm. th their sexuality is not questioned because it's it's. I'm paraphrasing because it's it's carnival. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that made me think of. Um, I think the person who wrote this essay is called Devin Carbato. Um, he, he's written an essay about heterosexual privilege. And one of the examples he gives is of the Wayans brothers, um, you know, and for those who don't know, the Wayans brothers are kind of, uh, the name of the scholar is Devon, D-E-V-O-N, Carbado, uh, C-A-R-B-A-D-O, and the essay's heterosexual privilege. Um, and one of the examples he gives about how heterosexuality in Black communities operates is the Wayans brothers. And for those who don't know, the Wayans brothers are like black royalty in the U.S., the com comedic family. All of them do something um, in film yeah. and television. And he uses the examples of how the Wayans brothers perform homosexuality and femininity and that it doesn't call into question their, homo their heterosexuality. It reinforces it. And that there is something yeah. that happens um, within blackness in particular where there's the, the approach to femininity only actually serves to reinforce how not feminine the black man is. And that just came to mind thinking about um, carnival as a vehicle for this kind of feminine expression, but that how it doesn't actually do that. <laughs> it doesn't challenge um, these men's yeah, idea of themselves. Yeah. 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 And I think, um, 
again, this is why it's so complex and it was very, very hard to make the show because I suppose as a scientist, I'm often, I'm trying to be like, look, look at all these multitudes. Like this is a really, you can't make a conclusion because the, this is too big of a thing. Like I need to make it smaller. Um, because I think, a thing that I would have loved to mention in the show, but it's, it's, uh, doesn't serve the story and doesn't serve, uh, doesn't serve the ultimate goal of the piece. But, you know, all of the drag characters are, you know, cis men dressing up as women. Mm. So there is misogyny, despite Carnival being queer in a, in a way, it's also misogynist in a way. Like I, I, I would hate someone to, to, to oversimplify and think that oh my god carnival is just a queer utopia and like gender doesn't exist and everyone's snogging everyone and it's all it's like some kind of utopia it is it is paradise don't get me wrong but things are things are things are complex and there there isn't a place well, where this it goes back to the beginning of our conversation right yeah. about emotions yeah right that there's a simplification of our emotions but yeah there's i'm inspired by the work of Sorry, we're just chatting bare shit now, but <laughs> um, I've got queer tattooed on my neck and that's from E. Patrick Johnson. And queer is queer for people of color. And uh, it's how black Southern Americans would say queer, queer. And it's also black Irish for queer, queer. And part of Great. the kind of theoretical uh, foundation for queer is... Um, E. Patrick Johnson's grandmother, he says, who was technically homophobic, right? But taught me everything I know about homosexuality, about homophobia, about feminism, right? And that um, we can't just discard um, and ignore the parts of our cultures that don't necessarily align with who we are because they have in some ways shaped us and that it is a queer of color community who goes towards those contradictions and those difficulties because they know that there's some sort of um, essence of themselves within that, within these contradictions and, and the, the kind of the politics and the emotions that emerge from these intersections. So I think Carnival would be the same for a queer trinity. I, yeah, I, I, I just, I hope, I hope it comes across in the show. I, I think, yeah. I, it's so tricky because I love Trinidad and I only want to speak good things about Trinidad, but like having grown up there and I'm here on a visa, like uh, I, I can't marry my girlfriend, you know, like my I'm not really out. I think I feel really bad because I don't want to diss or, or even critique my homeland um, in this place, the place that oppressed it mm. i want to be like fuck you trinidad is perfect <laughs> um brit sucks but then it's just also come on man like you know last year last carnival um my friend who's a trans woman was like pelted with bottles next to people in drag doing like cis men doing it like it's it's mm. it's just ridiculous it's it's it's, it's it, you're seeing a dude in drag not that, I mean, these things are obviously completely separate. Like she is a woman and he is not. He's cosplaying a woman. But that's such bullshit. And I just, I, I also don't want to say that here because fuck Britain. Uh, Trinidad's perfect. Yeah. Stay away. I get it. <laughs> I love it. Um, to close, I'm going to invite you to respond to something, one of Trinidad's most high profile ex expats, exports, um, Claudia Jones said, a people's art is the genesis of their freedom. Yeah. 
that 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 quote makes me feel very good because I think that's that speaks to how much what why I make theatre and why why and I genuinely genuinely love theatre like and it's embarrassing it's not a job it, it is a job but I adore it and I think yeah art art is how we're going to critique the society that we're in and I say this all the time art has to be political else I don't actually think it's art I just think it's conservative like I think art at its core needs to be political and that can like that 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 doesn't mean like you need to quote history books or anything it just needs like it can be a political act of joy it could be the political act of telling a story that's never been told or uh, enlightening someone on their history but yeah uh what is it art art is the genesis of freedom the people's art is the genesis of their freedom yeah well she started Notting Hill Carnival she was She's she's buried to the left of Karl Marx at Highgate Cemetery. I she's she's a hero, to be honest. And um, yeah, she's right. Emily, thank you so much for this far-reaching um and queer conversation. Um so we might even call it rambling. no, it's perfect. We might even call it carnivalesque conversation. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. isn't it a great word? We? Yeah, carnivalesque. <laughs> big big time, we did. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Emily Aboud is a theater director, a film director, and a writer of mixed heritage, born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago. She won the Evening Standard Future Theater Award in 2021 and is an associate artist at the Bush Theater. She is also artistic director of Lagahoop Productions. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music. I'm so busy being black.